0: From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap. A show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. This season of Innovators on Tap is sponsored by Husco International a fast-growing, community-oriented company specializing in high-performance hydraulic and electromechanical components. With over 70 years of experience designing and manufacturing these components, Husco takes pride in collaborating with customers to develop innovative solutions. Husco has U.S. locations in Wisconsin and Iowa, and global locations in England, Germany, China, and India a privately owned company that offers more than just a job, a career at Husco is an entrepreneurial experience full of incredible opportunities for growth, creativity, and innovation. Go to husco.com to begin your next adventure and put the lessons you've learned from the podcast to work. As I've discussed on this show many times, how you grow up has a tremendous impact on your mindset as an adult which could be shaped by a multitude of life experiences, from your first job, to family dynamics, and even participation in organized sports. For today's guest, Austin Ramirez, his leadership perspective was shaped by his journey as a competitive swimmer, where he learned how to overcome early failure and keep striving for better. He went on to compete as a college athlete and eventually represented the United States in several international tournaments. It was swimming that made him realize that with dedication and focus, he could become excellent at something. Now Austin is taking those lessons and applying them to the business world as the CEO of Husco International, a privately held engineering and manufacturing company. My conversation with Austin touches on the delicate balance between long-term innovation and short-term results why smaller and more nimbler firms are able to pick up market share during crises, and how he evaluates the next generation of talent for his company. Austin also discusses his time as a White House fellow during both the Obama and Trump administrations and his involvement with the organization Democracy Found, which is advocating for ranked choice voting across the US. As Austin likes to say, getting our democracy healthy again I don't think there's anything more important than that. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Thank you for joining me today on innovators on tap. It's great to have you here.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So I know that you had a pretty illustrious swimming career competing, I think in the world university games, an Olympic cup and the Pan American games. But I also read a story that you got off to kind of a rough start when you said early on you had a scary experience where you fell off a dock and your dad had to fish you out of the water. I'm curious, do you think that experience set you back or did it actually serve as motivation for your swimming career?
1: It's funny how you look back in your life and I've got you know a few really vivid childhood memories. And one of them is being under the water and feeling the darkness around me and having my dad's hand actually, you know come down from what seemed like heaven to me and, and pull me out of the water but to be honest I, I don't even connect it with my swimming career in that i can't remember being afraid of the water either before or after that swimming was was what you know that was my parents vehicle for burning off my excess in- energy and making me a manageable child so i never had any choice whether i was going to swim or not it was uh, it was uh, yeah th- their, their technique for for keeping me um keeping me in line. So I've been a swimmer as long as I can remember, even despite that early near drowning experience.
0: So I read that there was a moment when you were in high school that after a summer, I think you said of not so serious training that you went out and I think you won a heat of the 800 freestyle and you ended up getting a a medal and it kind of started you asking yourself, you know, what do you think you could accomplish if you really set your mind to it? And I'm curious, if you could describe that moment and then did that translate into your professional career?
1: That's a great question. You know, I, I I think the short answer is yes, it did translate. And I, before that happened, it was my junior year in high school. And I I love swimming. I was a pretty good swimmer. I think I'd won some state championships before that. So, you know, I was an accomplished swimmer, but I was, I, I was good figuratively speaking in a small pool, right in Wisconsin. And this was the first time on a national stage I'd ever had a real breakthrough. And I realized, you know, holy cow, I can actually be excellent at this at a whole another level that I had never contemplated before. And that, that really launched my swimming career and, and you know, ultimately gave me the opportunity to compete at, at a very high level for the United States. It translated into my career in the sense of it gave me a real hunger for, for excellence, right? I, I learned that I liked being great at something, not just good at something, but great at something.
0: So, you know, getting to the business today, so you're the president and CEO of Husco, and it's a privately held engineering and manufacturing company. And But I'm curious, you know, if I think about Husco's history, and, and you know, it's been around a long time,
1: do you consider Husco to be an innovative company? Absolutely. People think about innovation in different ways. For us, we, we've got three core values, one of which is is what we call practical innovation. You know, we make stuff, right? So we're 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 somewhat constrained by, you know, physics and manufacturing processes and, you know, the laws of thermodynamics. But, but, but at the end of the day, what we do is we don't have any standard catalog of products or components. We work with our customers and we we have customers in both what we call off highway. So that's mostly construction and agricultural equipment. And also on the, uh, in the automotive world, you know, passenger car engines and transmissions. And what, what we do is, is we, we, work with our customer to figure out what problem they need solved on a machine and then design a component to solve that problem and to do it in a way that's cost effective and can be, ma- can be manufactured at high volume scale. Um, so I mean, in, in a very real way, innovation is the lifeblood of our business because we, we don't have just a catalog that we rely on. Every program that we win depends on doing something smarter, uh, different, better than anybody else in the world can do and, and bringing it to bear for our customers in a really cost effective way. Do you ever
0: feel, though, a tension where maybe some of the bigger innovative ideas that are kind of pushing the limits or they're a little bit longer term out there, do you feel a tension with that and you know the priorities of running the business today and serving the customers? Because my sense is there might be a tension at least in competing focus and competing resources.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The tension exists every day. And we're re- we really focus on that practical innovation of providing you know, immediate or near-term value to our customers. That's our sweet spot. We're not a, an R&D house. We are focused on how do we deliver value to our customers? But at the same time, delivering value to our customers today means thinking about what they're going to need tomorrow or five years in the future and having at least one foot in that world of thinking about and developing both products and more importantly, the capabilities that we're going to need five years from now to solve the problems that our customers are going to have then.
0: I'm curious as you think about your business. In my sense what we found is there were people that were really good at managing the current business we had, but they were not the same people that were good at pushing the innovation side of it. I'm curious, do you find the same thing in your business or do you have a have you had success having people that could kind of live in both sides of that world?
1: You know, I'm going to answer a different question because I think my big challenge when I became CEO wasn't management versus innovation. We've actually, we've always been pretty good at both of those things. Our challenge as as an organization was, how do you go from this incredible business that my dad Gus had built, but had really had built to be run by an entrepreneur. I mean, my dad's amazing. And what he did, you know, he bought this company when it was $15 million and he mortgaged the house and he borrowed money from his parents. And he had incredible success growing this business. but he did it as you know really being the guy that made all the decisions and ran this business. By the time I came in, not only am I not as smart as my dad, but the business had' grown to a point where I, I just wasn't capable of running the business like he did. And so my challenge was, how do I really start professionalizing this business and building, layers of management, and I don't mean that in a hierarchical sense, we're actually a pretty flat organization, but how do I build layers of management within this business that could make all the decisions that historically had come to my dad to make and build the competence through our management team to really be able to do the management side of the business, be able to do the innovation side of the business, be able to do all the other things that we need to do to go from being you know, a $200 million business to being you know, a $1 or $2 billion business, is what, which is what we aspire to do
0: you know, it seems like every company's out there talking about how they're going to focus on innovation today. Like it's in every company's thing. I'm curious, do you think every company actually should focus on innovation? Do you think some should actually focus on just being really good at what they're already good at?
1: Yeah, um, it's hard for me to think about a business where innovation isn't a core competency that you need to have. Even if you are, you know, making a product that doesn't change, if you want to compete in today's hyper-competitive global environment... You better be innovating in your manufacturing process and your supply base and all kinds of other things that allow you to keep getting better every day i just i can't think of a business where innovation wouldn't be critical it may be innovation differently than how most people think about it you know it may not be fancy new products but still to me innovation is, is are you thinking differently about ways you can get better every day and it, it can look very different in different parts of the business
0: so you mentioned that during the COVID crisis that smaller, more nimbler firms like Husco can see these periods as an opportunity to grow your business. Yet I think most people look at a crisis and they don't see opportunity. I'm curious, do you think it's because of your size that you see this or is there something about how you're wired or, you know, that's different about the culture there that makes that possible?
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I don't think that uh, nimbleness is necessarily 100 percent correlated to size, um, but there is something there. Right. Um, It's harder, as you mentioned, it's harder to be nimble at two billion than it is at two million. Right. You just have less people, less momentum. You've got to shift. You know, one of the things we work really hard to do is to maintain our culture and the aspects of our culture that we think make us successful as we grow. And it gets harder as you grow because you have got more people and more momentum and all these things that that make it harder to maintain the positive aspects of your culture that have made you successful in the past. But, yeah, we I mean, when I, when I think about recessions, we we always pick up market share in recessions, whether it's a pandemic recession or a financial crisis or anything else. You know, our competitors tend to be, you know, they're, they're much bigger than us. The great companies, companies like Parker Hannifin and Bosch Rexroth. I mean, these are big multi-billion-dollar global companies but we can just we can move more quickly we can react to the what our customer needs faster than they can and these times of turbulence give us they always give us more opportunities to grow
0: so if huska was a publicly traded company how do you think you'd have to change your approach to running the business i'm not saying you want to be public but if you did what do you think would have to be different
1: you know i mean the the, the big difference besides all the administrative overhead and expenses of being public is this expectation that you're managing the business for quarter to quarter results. And you know, I-, I certainly look at monthly financials in a whole lot of detail, probably more detail than my management team would like, um, but we don't make decisions based off monthly or quarterly or even next year's financial performance. We are constantly thinking about how do we drive the most value for our shareholders over the long time. And I think good public company CEOs figure out how to do that, um, but there's a constant pressure and a constant incentive to manage for the short term. And we just we don't have any of that. I don't have I don't have shareholders that are reliant on liquidity. I don't have investors that are down my neck talking about next quarter's results. I have, you know, an ownership base that is 100% aligned with me in how do we create maximum value? Um, and maximum value that, that may be generational value, right? It's not even 3, 5, 10 years it could be 20, 30, 50, 100 years.
0: So I'm gonna shift gears a little bit. I understand that you were a White House fellow on the National Economic Council, both at the end of Obama's presidency and at the beginning of Trump's. And I'm just curious, can you share any insight how those two approaches were different?
1: Oh man. Yeah, we could we could spend an hour just talking about my my time in the White House. But just in a bit of context, I am I've always been kind of somewhat interested in politics, but I've never been someone that's been fully immersed in that world. And There was a period of time where I was thinking about my long term career aspirations and running for office was something that I thought might be, you know, in the cards at some point down the road. And I became aware of the White House Fellowship Program, which is it's a one year program. So it's a fixed duration where you really you're able to parachute into the very top of the executive branch and see government from that perspective. I mean, the brochure for the program says you're going to come in and you're going to be the right hand person of a cabinet level official. I got the opportunity to apply and was eventually lucky enough to get accepted. And um, it just so happened that my my year in Washington, D.C. was working in the White House and straddled the Trump and Obama presidencies. So I got to see really three discrete time periods. There was the pre-election Obama administration. There was the lame duck Obama administration, and then there was the first six months of the Trump administration, and they were each totally different. And I I learned a ton from my year there. Most importantly, was that I had no interest in running for office in the future. But I just, you know, I learned a lot about how government works and doesn't work, and um, you know what good leadership and bad leadership looks like, and. You know, you talk about this management versus innovation tension. I mean, in a way, that's a story of the Obama versus Trump White Houses. The Obama White House was very process-driven, very closely controlled. I mean, they went eight years without a scandal, and, and they were hugely focused on, you know, the professionalism of that White House. The Trump administration was the exact opposite. I mean, they they um, uh, innovative would be a charitable way to describe it, but it was, um, you know, it was the Wild West. There were not rigorous process controls it was whoever talked to the president last could sometimes influence his decision he would announce something that you know even his senior team would have the tv on and be surprised that they just hear the president announce something that they thought they were you know doing something different and so that was uh you know it was uh it was a very different environment and and i learned a lot from both
0: any lessons that you now apply in your role as ceo that you took from that experience
1: one of the positive aspects of government that I wouldn't have said was positive before I spent this year in the White House was that, you know, our federal government moves really slow for good reason a lot of the time. These decisions that are made in the White House uh, and on Capitol Hill, they just, they have huge implications for so many people. They're super complicated. There's lots of, you know, interests that aren't always apparent when you first look at a problem. And so this process of getting lots of feedback from lots of different people and, you know, very deliberately working through a problem um, it's appropriate sometimes. And I think my, my inclination is move fast, (laughs) break stuff once in a while, make mistakes, recover as you go and and keep moving forward. And that's, you know, a lot of times that's appropriate, but I think one of the things I've taken away, I took away from my time in the White House was there, there are elements to running the business where it's okay to be slow.
0: That's incredible insight. Um, I know that you're the co-founder and the chair of Democracy Found, which is promoting this idea of ranked choice voting. Can you explain both how the idea works and how did you get involved in this? Why did this become important to you?
1: Oh, great. Thank you for asking. So um, so, so the reason I say that my year in the White House cured me of running for office is that I, I learned very quickly what what... Anybody who's actually worked in politics knows intuitively, which is that policy decisions don't get made based on rational decision making. It's not about what's the right policy to serve the most amount of people in the most cost effective way. Policy making happens based on politics, almost exclusively based on politics. The first question that gets asked when you're introducing or contemplating a new piece of policy is how is this going to impact? the constituents that are most important to me? What's their perspective going to be on this issue? The way our election system runs today, most politicians live in districts that are safely Republican or Democratic, either because of gerrymandering or because they live close to people that tend to have similar perspectives. And what that means is the election that matters most isn't the general election, it's the primary election. And who votes in primary elections? It's the most activated ideological part of the electorate So over and over again, when I was in D.C., I was seeing I was talking to policymakers who would say, yes, I agree Why we should do X, Y, Z. That's the right decision to make from a purely objective perspective. But what you have to understand is that if I take a position on that, that is contrary to my party, I may not keep my job because I might get primaried by someone to my right or to my left, depending on if I was talking to a Republican or Democrat. And so the rational decision for me is not to support what is a good piece of policy, but rather to support the position that my party has, because, you know, I do so much good work here in Washington, D.C., and if I were to take a risk on this piece of policy and lose my job, wouldn't that be a shame for all my constituents in the country? And, you know, that's again, it's it's rational in a single decision. But when you play that out over and over again, you get to the situation we're in today, which is where Republicans and Democrats can't collaborate even on issues where there's huge consensus among the American people. Uh, I was having this lived experience at the same time that a good friend of mine, Catherine Gale, who's a another Wisconsin entrepreneur who had sold her business and had partnered with uh, a famous business school professor named Michael Porter. Uh, they were using uh, Porter's uh, famous Five Forces analysis to look at the politics industry and one of their main conclusions was the same conclusion that i was intuitively having in my time in washington dc which was that the incentive structure is all wrong the incentive structure in our election system isn't about delivering results for the electorate it's about maintaining the power of the political parties and so what 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 we've proposed what they michael and and catherine proposed in their paper which turned into a book which has turned into efforts across the country is get rid of partisan primaries and have one single ballot primary. So you don't have a Republican primary and a Democratic primary. You have one primary. Uh, the voters would would vote for their single favorite candidate in that primary, and then the top five vote getters—not two—the top five would proceed from the primary into the general election. And at that stage, you would use what's called ranked choice voting, which sounds like a mouthful, but it's actually a super simple concept. It's that you can you can vote for more than one person and you rank your choice. So if your favorite is the green candidate that has zero chance of being elected without a ranked choice voting system, if you vote for that person, you run the risk of, of wasting your vote. And in fact, causing the person that you like least to get elected with ranked choice voting, you can vote for your favorite candidate first, and then they tally all the votes. And if there's five candidates, they take the person that got uh, the lowest number of first place votes and they eliminate them. And they allocate everybody that voted for that person first, they allocate their second choice vote, and then they retally. And you keep doing that until somebody has a majority of first place votes. So it, it gets rid of this concept of having a spoiler candidate. So now you can have you know really viable third party or independent candidates that people can vote for without fearing that they'll upend the election. And you also create this dynamic where all of a sudden now people running for office, they don't just want your first place vote, they want your second place vote. So there's not as much incentive to be nasty in your campaigning uh, as there is to try to stake out positions that are attractive to the highest number of people in your district which you know i think you combine those two things together all of a sudden you've got even if you don't change out a single person in washington dc or madison wisconsin you've got people operating under a different set of incentives that will result in them making policy decisions that's that serve their constituents much better than today's election system does. So
0: what do you think the likelihood will be able to ever implement this?
1: Yeah, great question. So a lot of the political reforms that you hear about require federal action or sometimes like the Electoral College, that would take a constitutional amendment. Regardless of what you think about the Electoral College, we're never, ever going to have a constitutional amendment to change that. So in my view, the most powerful reforms have to be the ones that you can actually implement. Um, these election changes that I'm talking about, they're not like easy to get done, but they all happen at the state level. So each state governs how they run their elections. So to, to implement single ballot, top five primaries and ranked choice voting in the general election in Wisconsin, all we need to do is get the Wisconsin state legislature to write a bill, pass a bill and a governor to sign it. So that's not easy. There's lots of entrenched entrants that don't want to see the status quo change but it's a lot easier than changing the electoral college or something that requires the US Congress to take action on
0: If you're enjoying this episode and wanna learn more about how you can discover the mindset to pursue the impossible, please check out my new book, The Innovator's Spirit, where I explain the beliefs that lead to the behaviors that make innovation possible. It is available on Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Now, let's get back to the show. So I'm going to switch gears now because I want to go into a series of questions that get into your specific mindset and really talk a little bit about how you view, you know, both innovation and entrepreneurship. And and I want to start with a question that is, do you think your personal success has come more from avoiding failure or embracing failure?
1: Yeah. I mean, I know you pose it as a binary, but I don't think it is a binary. I certainly want to avoid, I want to minimize the likelihood of catastrophic failure. (laughs) I think um, any sort of change that you're going to implement, whether it's in business or in life, comes with risk. And so you've got to be able to accept and embrace risk. Uh, But whenever I make decisions, I always think about what's the worst thing that could happen here and how do I minimize the probability of that happening? So, Again, I'm not I'm not sure it's an either or. You gotta be comfortable with some level of risk and failure. But at the same time, if you're not really focused on, you know, particularly those sorts of fatal failures, then you know, you're gonna get yourself in trouble pretty quick.
0: So if you're focused on building a team that their goal is innovation, what dynamic is more important for that team? The brutal truth or psychological safety?
1: Now, again, I know you're you're trying to be provocative here, um, but I think if you combine an environment where it's okay to fail, um, you can create psychological safety, but at the same time, have a culture that is absolutely embracing of the brutal truth. So I, I don't think you can have innovation without both. If people are afraid, they're not going to innovate. But if they're innovating and not focused on the brutal truth of the either the Technical feasibility of what they're working on and the commercial feasibility of what they're working on, you're just going to be wasting resources and effort. So, um, you got to have both. You got to figure out a culture that can embrace both.
0: So, when you're confronted with a problem, are you more likely to think outside the box, build a better box, or set the box on fire?
1: That's a great question. I want to say set the box on fire. Uh, That's what my heart is screaming. But, you know, the reality is we make physical products, right? I'm an engineering and manufacturing company. You know, we are constrained by where that part fits on the machine and you know what's got to connect to it and all these other things. So as much as I'd love to light the box on fire, a lot of what we do is about how do we build a better box, right? How do we make this product perform in ways that our customer didn't think it could or or fit in the machine in a different way that it could. And you know, we are constrained by physics. We're constrained by, you know, the physical reality of the machine. Uh, We're constrained by economic considerations. And I I think that makes us better. I mean, a lot of times I think innovation without constraints, while maybe it's more fun, um, I think the constraints can sometimes direct you to the bigger breakthroughs.
0: Oh, that's great insight. So when you're evaluating talent to join Husco, when you're talking to that candidate, what do you think is the most important thing about them for their future success in your company?
1: We are really good at screening for technical aptitude. So what, if I'm talking to a candidate, I, I don't pay any attention to their technical aptitude. I know we can select for candidates that have the, you know, the mental capability to do the job. I think the, the most important, I, t- I tell this to our new employees, the most important thing that you can have uh, to accelerate your success at Husco is a great attitude. If you love being here and people love working with you, you're going to have a fabulous career at Hasco uh, because we just we don't let people in the door that can't do the job. Um, but what differentiates the great employees from the good employees are the ones that just have a, a, a level of personal attraction that you know people want them on their team, they want to work with them or for them. And um, I think you know it's particularly important for engineers who think a lot about cultivating their technical skills, but they don't. Necessarily think about cultivating their interpersonal skills, so I I focus a lot on that, with both with new employees and with people that are aspiring to leadership positions at Husco.
0: You know, there's still a history out there of you. You sit down and you look for those new college grads to bring in, and we start with their GPA, and we start with all these traditional skills. And yet, over three seasons of the show, some of the most successful entrepreneurs I've met were C students. Dropped out of college, never finished, and so I guess the question for you is: since we know there are these other intangibles, do you wonder if this traditional approach to screening candidates at the early stages is also limiting some of those natural skill sets you could leverage later on? I'm just a thought.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I'm going to answer it two ways. Um, one is that you know I don't necessarily want um, Mark Zuckerberg or, or Steve Jobs working for me. Right? They're, they're better suited being an entrepreneur and going and starting something new. So, um, you know, I prefer the A students that can work within the confines of an organization and be super productive. That's, you know, to be honest, they, they need to be able to be innovative and and be somewhat entrepreneurial, but it's not the person that really has a calling to go start a new business. But I, I will say one of the things that we've really been wrestling with a lot is, and it, it's really been um stimulated by a desire to do a better job of having a diverse workforce is the fact that, you know, we're a Midwest company. We hire mostly at Midwest engineering schools and we're like way too white and male. And that's both uh, like a moral issue. We want to be more diverse. And it's also a performance issue. I mean, diverse teams perform better. We know that. And so we've been thinking a lot about how do we change our recruiting process to get more you know, real diversity, not just racial and gender diversity, but real diversity of worldview and experience. And one of the things that we're, we're leaning into really hard right now is, can we recruit high-performing high school students that want to study engineering, but want to do it in the context of working a full-time job? I mean, now we can go send a student, you know, full-time or part-time to pursue an engineering degree online at a pretty low cost in a manner which allows them to both study and work at the same time. So that the pitch I would make is that a high-performing, low-income high school kid, why in the world would you go spend four years on campus and whatever, $100,000, graduate with debt and no work experience? And, and you know, granted, you'll have a degree. That's great. But come work for me, and in five or six years, you'll graduate with money in your pocket, a degree and five or six years of work experience. And I think that's a great value proposition to the student. I think it's a great value proposition for us because it lets us tap into, you know, a, a, a pool of, of human talent that we don't tap into today. And so I think it's it's things like that that are going to allow us to, you know, bring in both, you know, every element of diversity, racial diversity, gender diversity, worldview diversity, um, so that's what we're focused on thinking about. How do we think outside the box or light the box on fire relative to recruiting and finding the best talent?
0: So this has been awesome. But before we wrap up, is there anything else you wish we would have talked about or you want to mention?
1: I really appreciate you asking about the election reforms. To me, what I do at Husco is great. And we have you know impact in our industry and on employees' lives. And we do lots of great things. But you know, get, getting our democracy healthy again, I think, I don't know that there's much more important than that. Although, you know, there is one other thing I want to touch on. So you didn't ask about prep. You know, one of the best things to me about being a private business, a private closely held business, is that we've got the flexibility to use our success, not just um, to return, you know, profits to generic shareholders. And, And at Husco, we have really committed to making a major impact both in Milwaukee and everywhere we do business. But the biggest thing we've done by far is building the school on the south side of Milwaukee that's now serving 1,500 almost exclusively low-income minority kids, delivering them an education, and with that education, opportunities that just unfortunately don't exist in most of Milwaukee. And so I, um, I take so much pride in that, and our employees take so much pride in that, and I would never argue that businesses have an obligation to do big philanthropic things. I think businesses have an obligation to be great businesses and create economic value. Um, but being part of an organization like Husker, where you know that so much of the value that we generate is going back into the community and into improving people's lives, um, I, just, I just think that's awesome
0: on behalf of many other people in Wisconsin and Milwaukee, the stuff you do is incredibly impactful. And I just want to thank you for doing that. I think I know a little bit about that school and, uh, you know, there's nothing more powerful than you can do is change someone's trajectory at that point in their life that, you know, if they get a successful high school education and can go on to college, you change generationally what happens to those families. And so thank you guys for what you're doing there. I think it's incredible. And I want to thank you for being on the show. Your insights and uh, experience have been phenomenal. Um, thank you. And uh, we look forward to maybe having a chance to do this again someday.
1: Yeah, this was fun. Great question, Chuck. I really appreciate the opportunity and. Come uh, come tour on prep or come to our Husco next time you're in Milwaukee.
0: Thanks to Austin for joining me on Innovators on Tap and sharing his insights, including his simple yet incredibly important advice. That the most important thing that you have to accelerate your success is a great attitude. If you love being here and people love working with you, you're going to have a fabulous career. We want to thank all of you who have embraced this show and helped us grow the audience so far, including our sponsor, Husco International. And while we're proud of our success, we're really just getting started and hope that you will tell your friends about the show. We'd also really appreciate it if you would take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Please note that we have additional resources available on our website at innovatorsontap.com, including transcripts, articles, and an option to sign up for the Innovation Alley newsletter. Thanks for joining us on this journey, and let's go change the world.